All right, let's do this. How are you, folks? It's me, Mark. Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Uh, welcome to it. I, I, I'm excited. I'm nervous. Try not to freak out. I feel a little hazy in the mind. Didn't sleep great because the president of the United States is on the show today. He's coming over. I'm. It's not here now. But Secret Service people just keep looking in here, like. Who, who am I talking to? Like, maybe maybe the president slipped by the 50 or 60 people. <laughs> like, who's he, who's he talking to in the garage? Me, myself. It's been crazy. I can't, I can't really understand how this is happening. Uh, we, we've, we've known this was going to happen for a little while, and we thought it would be a fun idea, uh, a great thing, an honor to have the president stop by on this trip to... Uh, to Los Angeles, I'm now formulating, you know, how, how am I going to talk to him like I talk to him? I'm, fr- I'm a little nervous because he's the president and I've got to I've got to have a person in here. But that on top of the fact that, you know, they just swept my house with a dog. I had to uh, hide my cats in the bedroom. They had to sweep that separately. There was a lot of panic. I was in, as you know, in Hawaii uh, while a lot of this was going on. My producer, Brendan McDonald, was dealing with a lot of uh, pre-prep but today, they've tented my entire driveway. I'm told there will be a sniper on the roof. There's something in here that looks like a, a, a an armed yoga mat I didn't ask too many questions about. Uh, there are Secret Service everywhere. There's people, three or four people, maybe five or six people out there on, with headphones on listening to this. Again, the entire walk from the street, that section of the street where the, the motorcade's going to come up is tented. Oh, see? Look at that. I should turn that off. Right? Before the president gets here, I thought I had that off. Anyways, so there's a large tent. All my neighbors—they've closed down the entire neighborhood. So there's, I think people are excited but also annoyed at me. But there's people that have uh, made signs welcoming the president, and they're they're sitting in my neighbor's yard. I've got a bunch of scattered notes here. I have I put a lot of pressure on myself about this kind of thing. I I, I want to connect, but I don't want to do a policy discussion. I don't want to do a, a an interview that's been done before. I'd like to connect with him as a person. I got to hope that happens and happens with me not thinking that there's a LAPD all along the periphery of my house. There's a sniper on my neighbor's roof. Uh, there's LAPD on the street. There's secret service everywhere. The entire street is, is uh, empty and uh, it's just going to be me and President Barack Obama in my garage. And I know that he was at Tyler Perry's last night, so like I'm a little, you know, I mean, I like my house, but I imagine it's going to be, it's going to be different. It's cozy. It's cozy. I know he's at Chuck Lorre's, and, you know, they were doing a different thing, and there's a lot of people. It's just going to be me and him in here. All right, I've cleaned up a little bit. I've moved the piles into the house. Oh, man. All right, well, so that's what's happening. The next time you hear me, I'll be talking to the president of the United States in my garage. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. All right, I'm about to cry. Am I in the orange chair? Orange chair for you, Mr. President. Who's staying in the room? We're doing pictures. 
Oh my gosh. This is pretty cool. This is the place. This is where it happens. I like this, man. You do? I do. It's my whole life. You Everything. Like, but you're like you're, you're like a big cheese now, man. You can't pretend like you're just some What do you mean? Can I go on pretending? You can't pretend like you're some well, you then, know, little guy should, in the garage. Should you're I move? Not, you're not big time. Should I move? No, you, you know, this this <laughs> partly because of the uh the yeah. uh the knickknacks around here, man. Sure, it's the magic box. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on in here. Yeah, There's a lot the, of you got the give me shelter post. Sure, man. I got a, I got like yeah, I got a weird collection of, of things. You I got, got uh, some some uh, some drawings and pictures that we can't really discuss. On right. There. I got yeah. I got pictures over there. I got Dennis Hopper. I got uh, there's muddy waters. There's uh, there's uh, I got yeah, just stuff. A lot of pictures of yourself. I mean, there is a little narcissistic. Well, I mean. You know, people send them to me, and I, you know, I, I don't know that, that I really notice it, that they're all pictures of me. Maybe it's just comforting. <laughs> the uh, that's an old New Yorker review of a one-man show I did. There's the uh, yeah. yeah that's uh, great. Well, thanks, man. Bring, bring back good memories every time you, you walk in here. Well, kind of remember. Well, do, do you have that thing where like yeah, there's a lot of good memories, but then sometimes I'm like, do I need that thing anymore? Did, there's a book I didn't read that I've held on to for 30 years. Do I do I need to keep that? You never know when uh, when you <laughs> when you're gonna need it. <laughs> yeah, gotta, right? Yeah, got to read that book I couldn't understand 20 it, years ago. It, it could be the book you need in five years. Well, you used to live around here. I did. Yeah. This, this, I was explaining to folks, uh, Pasadena, these are my old haunts, man. And and do you, how close is that in your memory? Does it come right back? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, through somewhat of a haze. I mean, it was, I was uh-huh. college, so. How old were you? Like 20, right? 19? I was 19. And you lived right down the street. I've been right down I've, the street. And it, it, it's, how far away from you are you from that guy now? I mean, do you, can you lock into that? Can you find that in you yourself? Know, the truth is. I'm pretty much the same guy in a lot of ways. Yeah? Yeah. I I started keeping a journal when I was around 20. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kept it up until I went to law school. Yeah. So for about seven years. Sometimes I go back and I read this stuff, and I'm I'm still the same guy. Yeah. Which is good. Emotionally, or not? obviously not emotionally, but I mean, there's moments where you can sort of lock in. Like, yeah. what parts of your journal are you like, oh, like, are there still struggles that you were having then that you have the, now? Well, th- that's where th- stuff's changed in yeah. the sense that stuff that was bugging you by the time you're 53, either you worked it out or you just forgiven yourself and you've said, look, this is who I am. Oh, but I got to write that down. Right. So I can just forgive myself? Well, uh, you know, assuming that, uh, it was know, it too heinous? You're, you're not hurting anybody. <laughs> right? yeah. the, no, but you know what I mean? Uh, the, I, I think that you, at that age, you're still trying to figure out. Right. Uh, who are you? How do I live? What's my code? Right. What's important to me? What's not important to me? And you're sorting through all kinds of contradictions. And yeah. And, you know, by the time you get to into your 50s, hopefully a lot of those have been resolved. You've come to terms and come to peace with some stuff. And then uh, some stuff you've just said, well, you know what, that, that's just who I am. I, the, uh, I've got some flaws. I've got some strengths. And uh, that's okay. Well, what was the... What do you think the hardest thing for you to come to peace with was? Because, I mean, it's a, I, I've read uh, your work. You know, I know the the sort of struggles that you were going through, you know, as a young man right. that were ongoing. Right. So, you know, what's the difference between being at peace and, and resolving a struggle? And what were those struggles for you from day one? I mean. Well, when I was here in Pasadena, yeah. right, I had just come from Hawaii from high school. 
so some of it's just the same stuff that any kid when they they're off to college you're going through right, right. yeah you, time you know, to break out you're you're, you're breaking out yeah. you're trying to figure out how do i act right yeah uh, you know, uh how much fun should i have versus how much work yeah what's my work about because now nobody's telling you right what, what you have to do the did you have a vision you. though did you did you have work that you wanted to do by by my sophomore year, I did, and that's yeah. why I transferred. I mean, right. part part of me transferring from Occidental College, which is where I was going to school when I was living in Pasadena, was yeah. um, after after a couple of years in college, I started realizing that there were some things that were important to me, um, having an impact on social justice issues, having you know having something to say about poverty or or race or, or things like that. What sparked that though? Yeah, I mean, because like it yeah. seems to me, like you, your identity, your personal identity, yeah. sort of coincided almost exactly with your yeah. your political identity. Well, the, the, these are the contradictions I had to work out. So I, uh, you know, uh, my mother uh, was the biggest influence in my life, and this wonderful woman. Yeah. Um, but I am raised without a dad, an African American, but not. Uh, right. Yeah. Grounded in a place with a lot of African American culture, and so I'm trying to figure out. All right, I'm seen and and viewed and understood as a black man in America. Right. What does that mean? Yeah. I'm absorbing all kinds of stereotypes and ideas from society. Like Richard Pryor got right. the box set right like, there. Like Richard Pryor or Shaft. Or, right. Right. And 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 so I'm I'm trying on a whole bunch of. Outfits, right? Sure, hats. Here, here's how I should act. Here, you know, here, here's yeah. how it's. Here's what it means to be cool. Yeah. Here's what it means to be man. Is that when you start smoking? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. You, you know, you start smoking. You start drinking coffee. Good. Sure. Or, right. You got a leather jacket. Yeah. And then you fight that for the yeah, rest of your life. Exactly. The worst. And uh, and and then at a certain point, um, right around twenty, right, yeah. right right around my sophomore year, I started figuring out that uh, you know a lot of the ideas that I had taken on about being a rebel or being a tough guy yeah. or being cool were really uh, not me. They were just things that I was trying on sure. because I was insecure or I was a kid. Right. And and you know that's uh that's an important moment in my life although also a scary one cuz then you start realizing, well, I actually have to figure out what I really do believe and what is important and who uh, who am I really? And and a lot of that revolved around issues of race and being able to say that I don't have to be one way to be both an African-American but also somebody who affirms uh, the white side of my family. Right. Uh, I don't have to push back from the love and, and values that my mom instilled in me. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you fight at all? For a while, you know, she and I never fought, right? Because she, you know, uh, she was the, as sweet as could be, and she had a good sarcastic sense of humor, and she kind of put up with my adolescent rebellion. She's a very progressive person. She was. She was. Uh, I always call her. She was the last of the great secular humanists. You know, oh yeah. She, she was. Uh, you know, she, she th- thought all religions had something to say, and right. she thought all cultures were fascinating and, so you, and you weren't brought loved. up with that with the religion thing really at all yeah, no i mean we'd go to 
church for Easter sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but we <laughs> yeah. had we had a Shinto temple across the street from the apartment where we were living. And um, yeah, when I was in Indonesia, yeah. they, that's a Muslim country, sure. so you'd have mosques. And um, but but she uh, instilled in me these core values that for a while I thought were corny. Yeah. And then right around 20, you start realizing, you know, honesty, kindness, hard work, responsibility, looking after other people. They're actually pretty good values. Yeah, they're homespun. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they come out of uh, my Kansas roots. Um, But they're the things that ultimately ended up being most important to me and, and how I tried to build my life. Well, you know, I... I want to, you know, before, like, I, I feel like we jumped right in the conversation, we which did. is good. It was quick. And uh, I am, uh, I'm honored that you came. And, uh, and, and uh, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, privilege for me to talk to you. Listen, I, the, I'm a big fan. And, you know, I, I love conversations like this because you know, if, if I thought to myself that uh, when I was in college that I'd be in a garage yeah. a couple miles away from where I was living doing an interview... As with, president, as president <laughs> with a comedian, <laughs> I think that's a pretty hard scenario to. Uh, Couldn't imagine it. It's not possible to imagine. No, that it is not. No, nobody could imagine. And so, I, so that's fun. Well, yeah, and yeah. and I'm also like you know I you know I pay it. You know, I don't you know there was a period where I was uh, a little more attentive politically where I right. you know I ran the country from my couch for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, a, a lot, lot of people. A lot of people do. <laughs> Yeah, I hear from them all the time. <laughs> you idiot! Why? Why yeah. aren't you doing it this way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I heard from them this morning. <laughs> I, yeah, I've got I got nothing but emails <laughs> from people telling me what I got to say to you. Yeah, but but I also know that you you know given the events of uh, uh, of Wednesday that you, you know you had to put a, a lot in check. You you, you lost a, someone you knew, yeah. and and and, uh, and I'm sorry for your loss, and it, and it, it was a horrible thing. And and I appreciate you making the trip. You know, I, I know that 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 must be difficult to compartmentalize that. Yeah. And this is Friday, and this is going to go up Monday. And in terms of that, not to shift the conversation too far uh, uh, away from the candid. I mean, in, in your mind, you, you know, what happens now? Because this is going to go up Monday, and this is Friday. So, in relation to that event, well, look, they have captured uh, the suspect. Yeah. Uh, we've got a legal system that's going to work, uh, I think, uh, the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Uh, people are paying a lot of attention to it. The, the point I made in in the immediate aftermath of the, the killing. On, th- on Thursday, yeah. Was that I've, I've done this way too often. Yes. Um, during the course of my presidency, it feels as if a couple times a year, yeah, uh, I end up having to speak to the country and to speak to a particular community about uh, a devastating loss. And, uh, you know, the, the grieving that the country feels is real. Um, the sympathy, obviously, the prioritizing, comforting the families, mm-hmm. all, all that's important. Um, but I think part of the point that I wanted to make was that uh, – it's not enough just to feel bad. There are actions that could be taken to make events like this less likely. And one of those actions we could take 
uh, would be to enhance some basic common sense gun safety laws that, by the way, the majority of gun owners support. Mm -hmm. This is unique to our country. Um, yeah. there, 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 there's, there's no other advanced nation on earth that tolerates uh, multiple shootings on a regular basis and considers it normal. And to some degree, that's what's happened in this country. It's become something that we expect. The framing is it's a crazy person. It's a crazy person. You can't help it. But the truth of the matter is, is that other this doesn't happen with this kind of frequency in other countries. When Australia had a mass killing, I, yeah. think, I think it was in Tasmania about 25 years ago, it was just so shocking to the system. The entire country said, well, we're, we're going to completely change our gun laws. And they did. And it hasn't happened since. Well, and also with the, when you came into office, I, I mean, I know gun owners. I grew up in New Mexico. Right. My, my right. father was a gun yeah. owner. That there was this tremendous fear, like these, this, the guns are all, they're, they're going to come for our guns. And, and that is a common refrain. Well, in fact, uh, uh, typically, right after Newtown happened, for example. Yeah. Gun sales shot up. Yeah. And they ammunition uh, shot up. And, and, and each time that these events occur, ironically, gun manufacturers make out like bandits. Uh, partly because of this fear that's churned up that uh, you know the federal government and the black helicopters are all coming to get your guns. Yeah. And part of my argument is that you know, it is important for folks to understand how hunting and sportsmanship uh, is, uh, around firearms is really important uh, to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's part of how they grew up, part of you know, the bonding they had with their dad. Yep. Uh, yeah, it, it evokes all kinds of memories uh, and traditions. And, and I think you have to be respectful of that. Mm -hmm. The question is just, is there a way of accommodating that uh, legitimate uh, set of traditions with some common sense stuff that prevents a 21-year-old who uh, is angry about something or, or confused about something or is racist or is you know, uh, deranged from, yeah, very... from, from going into a gun store and uh, suddenly is packing yeah. and can do enormous harm. And, and that is not something that we have ever fully come to terms with. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, the grip of the NRA uh, on Congress is extremely strong. Uh, I don't foresee uh, any legislative action being taken in this Congress. And I don't foresee any real action being taken until the American public feels a sufficient sense of urgency and they say to themselves, this is not normal. This is something that we can change and we're going to change it. And if you don't have that kind of public and voter pressure, then uh, it's not going to change from the inside. So you, have, you still have uh, uh, faith in the American public and American democracy and momentum. And just to be clear, there are no black helicopters, correct? There are. Oh, oh God. There are black helicopters, but we generally don't deploy them. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, so. we, we deploy them against <laughs> bin Laden, for example, but okay. we generally don't deploy okay. them uh, uh, on uh, U.S. soil. Right. Yeah. But because, but like, I ask myself, and when, when I knew I was talking to you and I see somebody who, who symbolically, you know, that, that horrible 
event a Wednesday where they had an agenda. It was a symbolic right. event. He knew where he was doing that. Yeah. He knew what it meant. And now he's confessing saying he wanted to start a race war. So that, in my mind, it's like, where do you find hope of, of that ever stopping? And it is in the people. It's in the people. And, and I tell you, people ask me, what's, what's the thing you've learned most as yeah. president? Right. And I, I tell them, I don't know that this is something I learned, but it is something that has been confirmed. The American people are overwhelmingly good, decent, generous people. And, and I, I can say that because I meet a lot of people. And during this journey that you take, mm -hmm. from the time you start running for president to the you know, six and a half years in being president, you see folks from all walks of life. Yeah. You, don't just, you don't just talk to your supporters. You, you meet people who uh, you know, don't like you, didn't vote for you. Uh, you you go to areas that uh, are, you know, in in today's parlance, you know, red right. states is, and and uh, are considered very conservative. And you talk to people, and everybody that I meet believes in a lot of the same things. They they believe in some of those same virtues I was talking about that my mom taught me. They they believe in honesty and family and. Mm -hmm community and and looking out for one another uh, they very rarely think in terms of well that's a republican so i don't like that person or that's a democrat i don't like that person that, that that's not how folks organize their lives so so that always gives me hope and that always gives me confidence when i see how americans interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis it, it, the problem is is that there's this big gap between who we are as a people and how our politics expresses itself. And part of that has to do with gerrymandering and super PACs and lobbyists and a media that is so splintered now that we're not in a common conversation. And the fact that uh, you know, if you watch Fox News, you inhabit a completely different world with different facts you can, than if you read New York Times. Right. You can cherry pick your information yeah. to fit your and, ideology. And then you and, and that becomes self reinforcing. Right. And there is a profit both for politicians and for uh, news outlets in simplifying and, and polarizing. And and so all those things have combined to make our our political uh, institutions detached from how people live on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's part of why people get so frustrated and they get so cynical. But ironically, you get a negative feedback loop, right? When people start thinking, what's happening in Washington is so distant from how I see things that I'm not even going to bother to vote. Or, or even listen. Or I'm not even going to bother to listen. Right. And as a consequence, then the public withdraws and uh, you get an even worse uh, political gridlock and, and, and uh, polarization. So, so, so the issue is not the American people. That's where my faith is. The, the question is how do we build institutions and connections that allow the goodness, decency, common sense of ordinary folks to express itself in the decisions that are made about how the country moves forward. Well, it's interesting that people have lost faith, and, and and I think what you're speaking to is is I had this weird experience with a guy. You know, I did a show in Cleveland, and in the next theater over, it was uh, Dennis Miller and uh, and uh, and O'Reilly. Right. 
and after the show, I was talking to a guy, you know, uh, he was a, a Vietnam vet, and, he, and he, 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 we were just sitting outside, I was smoking a cigar, he was having a cigarette, and he was from the South, and he, uh, he said he just went and saw the show, but I didn't tell him who I was, and right. I tell him, I didn't discuss politics at all, I just let that go. Right. And I knew that in that moment, if I had brought up politics, there would be, there would be nothing but tension, right. nothing but fighting. Right. And, uh, and I didn't want to do it, but because I didn't, you know, I got to know who that guy was. Right. It's like I think some of what you're speaking to is like I think you're right about uh, most most Americans yeah. are decent people with these core values, but if you get two or three of them with the same ideology, you know, feeding a certain amount of hate on either side, then the individual does not come through. I, I think that's right, and 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 that's why that's why I think so many people shy away from politics because they know. Look, if, if I'm if I'm going to my kid's soccer game, and I'm just with a bunch of dads, yeah. And we're talking about sports, yeah. And we're talking about housing prices, and you know, we're we're just talking about how we're living our lives. Then everybody's finding all kinds of commonalities, and and yet the minute you introduce Republican, Democrat, Obama, yeah, <laughs> Bush, suddenly uh, people start breaking apart, and the question then becomes: How do you break out of that pattern and that's something i've spent a lot of time with over the last six and a half years i spent a lot of time just on policy and trying to get stuff right you know how do i make sure that we create more jobs how do we make sure that uh you know when i first came in uh how do i prevent a, another great depression uh, how do i make sure folks get health care but i increasingly i've spent my time thinking about how do i try to break out of these old patterns yeah. that uh, our politics has fallen into, uh, which is part of the reason why I'm here. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. One of the things that I've had conversations with my communications team about yeah. is, is how do we talk to folks who aren't already so dug in into a particular way of thinking about politics that uh, we can create more space for people to have a normal, ordinary conversation, and one in which, you know, the lines aren't as clearly drawn, black and white, and it, it's not this, uh, you know, battle in a in a steel cage uh, between right. uh, one side and another. Well, I became sort of disillusioned. I mean, I used to, you know, do uh, uh, left wing talk radio, and and I realized that there was a lot of things I was naive about. Uh, you know, and about, you know, just exactly how the government worked. Yeah. And then there, you know, there were certain, you know, trajectories around war yeah. and around uh, education and around, um, you know, the sort of, you know, corporate occupation of the American government. Uh, it, it, you know, you start to have those conversations yeah. and it becomes very hard to deny that some of that is true. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I imagine, you know, from what I see in, in thinking about your presidency and, and, and thinking about you is that there is an element and, and I don't know if this will be insulting to you. There's an element of the presidency that is sort of middle management. Yeah. And, and that it seems to me that you knew going in what you were up against. Because I've, right. I've read your early work and you knew how it laid out. Right. You knew how capitalism worked. Right. You knew how you, you knew that there was no, you know, you can't go in going like, you know, we can't live in a white man's world. We, you, those color lines had to be, you know, scrapped. Right. But also you knew the realities of business. Right. So it seems to me that in, in, in thinking about that middle management frame, that you're, what you knew you, the game you had to play, but you knew that you had to, I, I think left to its own devices, sadly, the government is only going to cede so much to poor people. 
Well, you know, here here's another way of putting it. Okay, uh, but but uh, I think you're onto something. Um, you know, when I ran in 2008, yeah, you know there there were those posters out there, hope, yeah, right, okay, um, and change, yeah. and and those are capturing aspirations about where we should be going, yeah. A society that's more just, a uh-huh. society that's more equal, a society in which uh, the the dignity of every individual is uh, respected, mm-hmm. uh, a society of tolerance, yeah. a society of opportunity. And the question then is, how do you operationalize those abstract concepts into something really concrete? You know, how, how do we get somebody a job? How do we improve a school? How do we uh, make sure that uh, you know, everybody uh, gets decent health care. As soon as you start talking about specifics, then the world's complicated. Yeah. And there are choices that you have to make. And it turns out that the trajectory of progress mm-hmm. always happens in fits and starts. And you've got these big legacy systems that you have to wrestle with and you yeah. have to balance uh, what you want and where you're going with what is and what has been. And I, you know, one of the interesting things is the conversations I have with supporters who will say to me, you know, we think you're a great guy. You've done some good things, but I'm so disappointed with X because X didn't happen exactly the way I wanted it. Uh, and what I have to explain to them is that progress in a democracy yeah. is never instantaneous and it's always partial and it, and you can't get cynical or frustrated because you didn't get all the way there immediately so you know during uh, the healthcare debate there are a lot of people yeah. who just wanted a single payer plan right right uh, yeah. and as i said before if i were designing a system from scratch that would probably make more sense. We're the only country on earth that, not the only country on earth, but we're one of the few countries that has this weird amalgam of private sector and Medicare and sort of a patchwork system, hugely inefficient. We spend more than any of the other advanced countries. Our outcomes aren't necessarily better. But the notion that we were just going to scrap the existing healthcare system, which is a sixth of our economy and employs millions of people and that wasn't going to happen. Right. So the question is, all right, given to where we're starting now, how do we move as best we can in the right direction? Five years later, we've got millions of people who have health care that didn't have it before. We have the lowest uninsured rate that has ever been recorded. But for a lot of people, they're looking at it and saying, well, we didn't get everything we wanted. For mm-hmm. me, what I say to myself is, for those millions of people, many of whom write to me and say, you know, you saved my life, that's democracy working. That's that's government working. Um, you know, the same is true when it comes to uh, how we think about uh, the fight against mm-hmm. terrorism. You know, we ended two wars. But I always said from the start that there really are people out there who would have no compunction about just blowing up an entire neighborhood of Americans, innocent 
men, women, and children, yeah. uh, for ideological reasons. We have to deal with that. And that then means that we do have to be able to identify those networks. We do have to, when we can find those folks, try to prevent them from doing what they're doing. And so for the last six and a half years, what I've tried to do is to build up a legal structure that is consistent with our values and due process, build up a intelligence system that is consistent with our civil liberties. Yeah. And sometimes my supporters will write and say, you know, there's some stuff here that you're doing that that's just like Bush. And what I explain to them is the problems with the excesses of our counterterrorism approach after 9-11 were real uh, and waterboarding and torture and renditions. Right. We stopped. But... That doesn't mean that we don't have real problems out there and that there aren't balances that we've got to strike and figure out. And it's complicated. And we've got to uh, be mindful that uh, whatever abstract views you have about drones or that you have about uh, uh, intelligence gathering, that if you were sitting there in the situation room, uh, you'd realize that uh, you've got some responsibilities and you've got some choices to make. Uh, And it's not all... Uh, you know, uh, clear cut, clear cut uh, the way oftentimes it gets presented. So, so I guess to, to go to the point you were making earlier, that that's where, yeah, it's, it's like middle management. Sometimes your job is just to make stuff work. Sometimes the task of government is to make incremental improvements or try to steer the ocean liner two degrees right north or south so that Ten years from now, suddenly we're in a very different place than we were. But at the time, that made the that, that, that may not. But 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 at the at the moment, yeah, people may feel like we need a fifty degree turn. We we don't need a two degree turn. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, if I turn fifty degrees, the the whole ship turn. <laughs> they, they they weren't going to let you turn fifty degrees. And and, and you <laughs> you can't turn fifty right. degrees. The uh, shock not, to the system. Not, and and it's not just because of. You know, uh, corporate lobbyists. It's not just because of uh, big money. It's because societies don't turn fifty degrees. Democracies certainly don't turn fifty degrees. They, and and that's been true on issues of race. That's been true on issues of the environment. That's true on issues of discrimination. Mm-hmm. As long as they're turning in the right direction, right, and we're making progress, right. then you know, government is. Working sort of the way it's supposed to, but it's very optimistic of you. And, and I'm I, an optimistic guy. <laughs> I am. No, but I, I mean, like just the way you're, you, you know, because I don't know how you deal from day to day. I was panicking all morning. You know, I, I don't imagine you were flying in here on the chopper, thinking like, you know, I, I am nervous about Mark. No, I wasn't. Okay, well that's good. That yeah. makes <laughs> good, that because, would be a problem. It would be a problem if the president was feeling yeah. stressed about <laughs> coming to my garage. Coming to your garage. But you deal with that stuff for all a the, podcast all the time. I mean, like you know what you're saying is this incremental progress. But yeah. I mean, you had a Congress that was you know you know dead set on not yeah. giving you anything, right? And and then you know the the then it got to a point where they they really even if they wanted to work with you they couldn't because their constituents had, that's had, exactly right. They got their constituencies all stirred up. They thought you were yeah. Satan, right? And and so you had that obstacle, right? And then you're, you're coming into uh, you know a country that was depleted, and I right. just it, it it's fascinating to me that you were able to maintain this hope. And now, again on Monday when this posts, 
right. the Supreme Court's going to make a decision right. about your about the bill. The healthcare bill. I mean, yeah. that's a huge thing. This is a a, a slightly very crazy case. Yes, shouldn't that, should, shouldn't have been taken in my view. But but it could dismantle your 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 your, your big thing. The thing that you gave everybody. Well, co- that- well, well, a couple of things I'll observe. Number one, and not to get into the weeds on this, but yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm confident we'll win. Okay. Because the law is clearly on our side. Uh, number two, uh, the the case at issue is not whether the entire Affordable Care Act is legal. Right. It is a very narrow statutory interpretation about whether those states that didn't set up state exchanges, but whose people are benefiting from the subsidies under the Affordable Care Act, whether they still get those subsidies. If the Supreme Court were to decide against us, five to six million people could lose their health insurance. Immediately. Well, they who knows what they said. But uh, people in California, for example, where there's a state exchange, yeah. or New York, right. they wouldn't lose it. Right. All the benefits that have happened for people who already had health insurance, not being able, uh, not being discriminated against because they have a pre-existing condition, making sure that uh, women aren't having to pay more for men uh, than men for insurance, mm-hmm. those things wouldn't go away. But look, are there frustrations in my job? Yes. On the other hand, I can say unequivocally, I can answer Ronald Reagan's question unequivocally. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Right. And the answer is on every economic measure, just about you are. Right. And so when I take uh, an unemployment rate from 10% down to 5.5%, when I drive the uninsured rate to the lowest it's ever been, when I... Uh, restore people's 401ks when uh, I make sure that we're doubling clean energy and we are uh, reducing our carbon footprint and high school graduations are the highest they've ever been and college attendance are the highest they've ever been. And civil rights elements too. And and LGBT rights have been uh, recognized and uh, solidified in ways that we couldn't even imagine 10 years ago. When I look at those things, uh, I can say that in terms of not just managing the government, mm-hmm. but moving the country forward, um, we've had a lot more hits than misses, and we've made a difference in people's lives. And that is ultimately you know, what you're looking for. You know, When you wake up every day, you say to yourself, are things a little bit better? Yeah. And if you if you take that long view, then you're less nervous or stressed about the day to day ups and downs, and mm-hmm. you know what's in Politico today, or what are my poll numbers doing, or what did such and such say about me? And you kind of just start blocking that stuff out because you're staying focused on uh, your ultimate destination. You can just block it out, obviously. I, you have I, to. I, I have learned not to worry about the day-to-day and to stay focused on what I need to do uh, for the American people long-term. And and now, look, some of it's temperament. I I, uh, I always say uh, part of this is just being born in Hawaii is really nice. I was and, just there yeah, and, and, in Kauai. Yeah, you feel better. Uh, yeah. It's right. A, like so you... so I, I feel like that fortified me <laughs> so that I just, you know, there's a certain element of chill 
You've got a Hawaii in the mind. You got a little Hawaii in the mind, and uh, and that's part of it. Yeah. Um, but don't you get furious? I mean, I saw you on TV the other day, and I could see the anger. And you're you're you're, yeah. you're not a you're not a boil over kind of no, guy. But no. I could feel it. Yeah. I, there are times. I, I I will tell you. Um, right after uh, Sandy Hook, New, yeah. Newtown. Yeah. When twenty six year olds yeah. are gunned down, and and Congress literally does nothing. Yeah, that 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 uh, that's the closest I came to feeling disgusted. I, I was pretty disgusted, but but the uh, you, you know that's that's the exception rather than the rule in the sense that on most fronts I've been able to find ways to make progress even in the face of obstruction even in the face of resistance, even in the face of gridlock. So on climate change, for example, right. Congress has not acted. Right. On the other hand, just through rulemaking, we've been able to double fuel efficiency standards on cars. We are right in the middle of putting together a rule to reduce carbon pollution from power plants. Uh, and we'll, we'll get that stuff done. We'll, and it would be a lot better, it'd be a lot more helpful if we had some cooperation from Congress and if I didn't have the chairman of the Energy and Environment Committee in the Senate holding up a snowball uh, as if that was proof that climate change wasn't happening. Right. <laughs> that would be useful. So that kind of, but, but does does the, like, because you're a smart guy, you're a results-oriented guy. Yeah. And, and, and you see yourself as a practical person, which you are, and yeah. that the stuff that you're talking about should make sense to everybody. Yeah. And that's the way you approach right. these these guys who I, are like, right. yeah, no. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm a, look, the, some, some of the, some of the, the mythology about me about being very professorial and right. removed uh, that stuff is is actually um i think it has to do with me not schmoozing enough uh, in washington because i got two kids and, right and uh and it's true that you know, I, I don't do the cocktail circuit and some of the backs you don't play the game in that I don't, way I, it, it, but the truth is though it is accurate to say that uh, I believe in reason, okay, <laughs> and I and and I believe in facts, right, and I believe in looking at something and having a debate and an argument, but trying to drive it towards some agreed upon set of assumptions about what works and what doesn't. So, if you want to argue with me that. Uh, it's better off if we cut taxes for millionaires and billionaires. I don't mind you putting that forward as an argument, but if I then present to you a set of facts that shows that that does not result in higher economic growth, but in fact, when we have a more equitable tax system, that's when everybody's benefiting and that's when we grow. And I can show you charts decade by decade of when we grew fastest and what worked and the fact that your theories generally have not worked. Yeah. My expectation is at some point yeah. you say, okay. Yeah. You know, that, that makes that, sense. That, that makes sense to me. Right. And and that's where uh, there are times where it is frustrating because the public has look, it's hard for the public to follow this stuff. Yeah. Not because they don't get it, but because they got their lives to lead. You know, you're working, you're trying to get your kids to they school. They just want to be okay. 
They want and, things and, to be okay. They're, they're not going to be able to follow the intricacies of the healthcare debate. So if somebody's going around saying death panels, yeah, it'll lock in. You know, they sort of think, well, I I don't like the idea of death panels. That doesn't sound good. Um, and and so one of the challenges that uh, I've had to adapt to. And I think this is where hopefully I've gotten better as president because, yeah. you know, you, you learn as you go along, is to recognize that it's not enough just to be right or to get the policy right. It's also important to be able to communicate it in a way that is digestible, easily enough for the public that you can move the needle of public opinion. And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, you being able to get enough folks in Congress who share your views to have the votes to get stuff yeah. done. And and you can talk all you want, but right. you're not going to change the other side's mind, and you just have to go ahead and see if you can move forward uh, because they are resistant to, in some cases, rational, fact-based arguments. So, all right, you've gotten an amazing amount of stuff done, and, and uh, in, in, in a time in the last year you got some big stuff done yeah. where people didn't think you were going to get anything right. done. And now... Uh, this this horrible thing happens Wednesday, and and you know you have uh, you know these police actions in Baltimore and Ferguson. I mean, right. where you know coming from where you came from, right? And and you know trying to define yourself in terms of uh, the African American community right. and, and, and in terms of uh, racial relations. Where, where where are we with that in yeah. terms of when you came in in your mind? Well, for, first of all, I I always tell young people in particular, uh, do not say that nothing's changed when it comes to race in America unless you lived through being a black man in the 1950s or 60s mm-hmm. or 70s. It is incontrovertible that race relations have improved significantly during my lifetime and yours and that opportunities have opened up and that attitudes have changed. Yeah. That, that is a fact. What is also true is that the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination in almost every institution of our lives, you know, that casts a long shadow. And that's still part of our DNA that's, that's passed on. Uh, it, we're not cured of it. Racism. Racism. We are not cured of Clearly, uh, and 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 it's not just a matter of uh, it not being polite to say nigger in public. That's not the measure of whether racism still exists or not. It's not just a matter of overt discrimination. We have to, societies don't overnight completely erase everything that happened two to three hundred years prior, and so. What I tried to describe in, in the Selma speech uh, that I gave commemorating the yeah. march there was, again, a notion that progress is real and we have to take hope from that progress. But what is also real is that the march isn't over and the work is not yet completed. And then our job is to try in very concrete ways to figure out what more can we do? So let's take the example of police practices. Cops have a really tough job. Yep. And part of the reason cops have a tough job, particularly in big cities, is that there are communities that are poor, are systematically locked out of opportunity, that suffer from 
legacies of discrimination that have been built up over <laughs> generations. And we send cops in there basically to say, keep those folks uh, from making too much trouble. But how do we fix what you just said? Right. Well, they, I'm, I'm going to get to that. So, so the point is, though, that we can break it out, out into these component parts and we can say, number one, there are specific ways that we can make police community relations better and police more right. accountable. Yeah. And so we put together a task force with police officers and young people, including some of the folks who led the Ferguson marches. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, they came up with a consensus of things that could be done that would make things better. All right. So let's implement those. Now, in the meantime, what are we doing to help those lowest income communities? We know that, for example, early childhood education works. That is one way to break the legacy of racism and poverty if a three-year-old, four-year-old kid is in an environment of love and is getting a good meal and has a teacher that's trained in uh, early childhood development and is hearing enough words and is being engaged enough, they can get to where a middle-class kid is pretty quickly. Is that happening? It, it turns out it is, but it's the problem is is that it happens spottily, right? It happens in this community or this school district or this neighborhood or this outstanding principal is making something happen or this philanthropist has decided decide to do something. But what it what hasn't happened is us making a collective commitment to do it. So the the point I'm making is is that when you look at how to deal with racism, mm-hmm. how to deal with issues of uh, some of the police uh, shootings that have been involved. I'm less interested in having an ideological conversation than I am looking at what has worked in the past mm-hmm. and applying it and scaling up. What is required is a sense on the part of all of us that what happens to those kids matters to me even if i never meet them because my society is going to be better off i'm going to feel better about the the america i live in and over time i'm confident that my children and my grandchildren are going to live a better life if those kids also have opportunity that's where we have to feel hopeful rather than just say that Nothing's changed. We have to say, wow, we've actually made significant progress over the last 50 years. If we made as much progress over the next 10 years as we have over the last yeah. 50, things would be better. And, 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 and that's within our grasp. It's, 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 it's available yeah. to us. And, and this is where, again, you want to get to those decent, well-meaning Americans who would agree with that, but... When it gets translated into politics, it gets all confused. And, and, and trying to bridge that gap between, I think, the good impulses of the overwhelming majority of Americans and how our politics expresses itself continues to be the biggest challenge. What, what do you do to, uh, to, to have fun? I mean, like, I, I can't imagine what it's like to raise a family in the situation that you're in as president. It must feel sort of insulated. You know, the, uh, uh, the biggest fun I've had is watching my girls grow up. And, yeah. and they are... Uh, they are magnificent. I, look, hopefully every parent feels the way I do about my daughters. Yeah. Um, 
But I think they are spectacular. And when Michelle and I came into office, the biggest worry we had was, is this going to be some weird thing for them? And are they going to grow yeah. up with an attitude? Or are they going to uh, think that everybody eats off of China? Right, right. <laughs> and uh, Are they? And, it, you know, it turns <laughs> out that they've just become uh, – they're kind – they're thoughtful. They treat everybody with respect. They uh, don't have any kind of airs. Uh, they're confident, but without being cocky. Mm -hmm. um, they've got great friends. They've been able to, uh, you know, they're not stuck in the bubble the same way I am. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they go to the mall. They have sleepovers. They go to prom. You know, Malia's started to drive. Um you know they're, they're they're doing great. So my biggest fun has been watching them grow up. Now, unfortunately, they're now hitting the age where they still love me, but they think I'm completely boring. Yeah. And so they'll come in, pat me on the head, talk to me for ten minutes, and then they're gone all weekend, right? <laughs> yeah. And they break my heart. And so now I've got to start thinking, well, what's what's re what's going to replace that fun? Right. Uh, but the one thing you don't have to worry about is like, well, I I hope they don't get lost. That never happens. <laughs> right. I mean, what is true, you know, uh, sometimes Malia, for example, as yeah. she got older, was starting to chafe a little bit about Secret Service. Uh-huh. And I had to explain to her, sweetie, uh, let me tell you something. Uh, if you think that you'd be over at your friend's house until 1130 and then I'd be coming to pick you up, you're crazy. Right. So the only reason you're out is because you've got a detail. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be home because because uh, I, I I wouldn't be chauffeuring you around. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, you know there, there's a balance of of that stuff. Um, you know, I've I've been trying to work out pretty hard just to stay in shape. That mm -hmm. that's useful. But it's not you know I used to play basketball more, but these days I'm I I've gotten to the point where. It's not as much fun because I'm not as good as I used to be, and I right. get frustrated. Yeah, well, you can't be because you're yeah. a, you play for real. Yeah, I used to be. I I, I was never great, but I was yeah. a I was a good player, and I could play seriously. And now I'm like one of these old guys who's running around, and yeah, the, the guys I play with who are all a lot younger, they they sort of pity me and oh. sympathize with yeah, me. You know, they to they tolerate me, but you know they know we all know that I'm the weak link on the on yeah. the court, and I don't like being the weak link. Right. Yeah. And, and psychologically, you know, in terms of 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 where you come from and and, and your family, yeah, you, you know the the revelations that you grew to have about your father over time, right. Right. and you know your extent. Do you did you find yourself confronting in yourself the same challenges that your father did with you know with um, stubbornness, with. Uh, you know, dealing with uh, you know alcohol and that kind of stuff. You know, I I, I was I was lucky in that sense. I mean, you know, for for those who are listening who you know, haven't read my book or something, but yeah, you know, my dad was a, a a tragic figure in a lot of ways. Um, a, a brilliant man by all accounts, uh -huh. uh, who sort of took a leap from uh, a tiny village in the backwaters of Kenya to suddenly the United States getting a degree, attending Harvard, uh, and he never managed that leap as well as he could have. And I and and part of the process of me writing the book was was to figure out what happened to him and, and how did he become 
who he was. And you know, he ended up becoming an alcoholic and abusive towards uh, his uh, several wives and, uh, and to some degree a neg- uh, neglectful father. Um, in some ways, because I didn't grow up with him, yeah, he he was an abstraction to me. Right. Um, that stuff didn't seep into me. Uh, you know, my mother and my grandparents, who did raise me, fortified me. Although they were one thing they always did that I thought was wise yeah. was they never portrayed a uh, a negative picture of him. They actually accentuated what was good about him rather than bad, which is an interesting thing. And you had to go and do so, your own homework. So I had to go do my own homework. <laughs> but the point is, though, yeah. that I, I didn't end up. It was a good myth. It was I, a good yeah, myth. it was a good myth. And yeah. I didn't internalize a bunch of negative uh, attitudes about who he was and thereby didn't think that that was who I had to be. So, uh, you know, I had the adolescent rebellion screw up mm-hmm. uh, period that has been well chronicled. Yeah. Um, but it turned out that that a lot of his craziness, uh, uh, I, I didn't end up uh, I didn't end up internalizing it. You know, one one of the things that I always say is, uh, you know, I've said this to Michelle. One of our biggest jobs as parents, because we're all a little bit crazy, mm-hmm. is let's see if we can not pass on some of our craziness to our kids. Right. That's and, a challenge, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and let's see if we can break the cycle. How yeah. are you crazy? Well, for example, yeah. um, I think that having grown up the way I did without a dad, moving around a lot, my mom sometimes gone because yeah. of the nature of her work, um, it was very important to me to be a good dad. And part of, I think, the attraction to Michelle originally, in addition to her being really good-looking and, yeah. and uh, smart and tough and funny, was she had this opposite uh, experience growing up. I mean, she, it, it was really leave it to Beaver. You know, dad, mm-hmm. mom, mm-hmm. brother, mm-hmm. Uh, live in the same place for you know, her entire childhood uh, family everywhere, and so, so she helped ground me in a way that allowed my kids to have this base for themselves that I never had. Uh, conversely, I think Michelle would be the first to admit that part of probably her attraction to me was that, that her living in the same place all her life in this very traditional sense uh, sometimes made her less adventurous and less open to doing new things. Mm-hmm. And so she has seen me as a way to instill in our kids this willingness to take a flyer on something, try mm-hmm. it out, sure, do something new. Uh, and, uh, you know, so in, in that sense, each of us, I think, have been really mindful about trying to make sure that whatever limitations or gaps we've got that we're kind of on the same having 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 uh the other the other person help uh, fill those gaps at least for our children and and when like we i know we got to finish up here in a minute or two but uh you know like when she goes like if michelle says uh would you stop that please what is she talking about uh (laughs) do you like well yeah i mean they're being late 
Yeah. Um, do you do you isolate? Like, I pick, for some reason, I see you as a guy that's sort of like in your head and just sort of like you know, we'll just detach a little bit. No, no, no. I'm I'm very engaged. That that's not. She 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 will say stop that. In the when we first started dating, yeah. and I'd, I'd always give myself kind of a fifteen minute leeway, right? <laughs> right, in terms of showing up, okay, and and getting the stuff, and uh, partly because Michelle's dad had multiple sclerosis mm. is really interesting. I, mm. I used to say, well, you know, why, why are you stressing me about you know being late? Yeah. I'm, I'm just fifteen minutes late, ten minutes late. What's, right. what's the big deal? And then. I don't remember how long we were in the relationship when she described how her dad had to wake up an hour earlier than everybody else because he had multiple sclerosis. Just to put on his shirt and button his own shirt was a big task. Right. And if he want, if the family wanted to go see Michelle's brother play basketball, mm-hmm. this is before the ADA, the American Disabilities mm-hmm. Act, you know, uh, They'd have to get there early mm-hmm. so that her dad, on crutches, could hobble his way up the stairs to their seat. And that mentality of not wanting to stand out and not wanting to you know, miss something mm. had instilled in her, so it was a very emotional thing. It was loaded. Right? It, it wasn't just right. about being late. It wasn't late. just about being late. Yeah. And, and so, well, you know, that's one of the beauties of marriage, right? Over time, if, if it works, it's because you start figuring out, you know, the fights you have are never about the fights. Yeah. It's never about the thing you're fighting about. It's, about it's always about something something else. It's about a story. It's about yeah. respect. It's about something recognition. Young something young, Yeah, it's something, something, something deep. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know. So okay, so I think we did good here. We, I thought I thought it was a pretty good conversation. Yeah, I mean, pretty good. I, the, what could I what could I have done better? What did you what did I not do? Did you were you expecting well, we, something a little lighter? No, no, no. We we it's just you know we we sort of dove in. It it, it didn't have that kind of nice sort of uh, ease into it. So suddenly we were just in it. Yeah, that's sort of like away. the way I am. But you know, that's intense. what I figured. So I went with it. I rolled with it. How do you do this? Like you know, like you know, you just able to like because I I I saw you in Manassas. Yeah. The day after your your grandmother uh, passed, yeah. the day before the election, and you yeah. just turned it on. Then the the you know you 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 were just doing gigs last night. You're yeah. going to Tyler Perry's and Chuck Lorre's doing the yeah. thing. You're touring, yeah. <laughs> doing that part of the job. Yeah. I you know the night of uh, you know I'm a comic, so the night that you knew that they were going to shoot Ben Laden, you're doing comedy. I was pretty funny too. Yeah, yeah. But you know, is there some trick that you can uh, share with us all? Of how you just sort of focus in on that—is everything that immediate to you that you can compartmentalize that quickly, or you just know that you have to show up and do the job? Yeah, I, look, the uh, because you're a performer, you know this is this is true, and you, you, you're friends with a lot of comics. Um, you like comedy? I love comedy. And uh, who are your guys? Well, Pryor Pryor was an early right? one. Yeah. yeah. Dick Gregory when he was oh, really right. you know uh, on the edge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know what? I love all. You know, Seinfeld's a whole other different uh-huh. type. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Louis, you know, I know is a buddy of yours. Yeah. I, I love Louis. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think uh, Louis's terrific. Uh-huh. Uh, oh boy, he just made his life. No, no, he I, just made his I life. I mean, he, 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 he's he's wonderful in in a such a self deprecating but yeah, but edgy kind of uh-huh. way. I mean, I uh-huh. and uh, 
and and basically good-hearted even when he's saying stuff that's pretty yeah you know wrong wrong <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. but 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 you can the, there's a goodness mm-hmm. about him that comes through um but look i i think that uh i think at the end uh what all those guys understand is the more you do something and the more you you practice it at a certain point it becomes second nature sure. and and what i've always been impressed about by uh, when i i listen to comics talk about comedy mm-hmm. is how much of it is a craft right mm-hmm, yeah. and they're thinking it through and it's uh, and and they have a sense of when it works and when it doesn't and then the longer you do it the better your instincts are same with president yeah same with president <laughs> and and also uh i guess the last thing is you lose you lose fear that's right i i, I was talking to somebody the, the other day um uh, about why i actually think i'm 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 a better president and would be a better candidate if I were running again than I ever have been. And it's sort of like an athlete. You, you might slow down a little bit. You might uh, not jump as high right. as you used to. But I know what I'm doing, and I'm fearless. For real. You're not pretending right. to You're be fearless. You're not pretending to be fearless. That's exactly right. right. And, and when you get to that point. Freedom. Then, you know. And, and also part of that fearlessness is because you've screwed up enough times. Sure. That you know that it's all it's, happened. It's it's all happened. I've I've been through this. Right. I've I've screwed up. Right. I've, I've been in the barrel, tumbling down Niagara Falls. Yeah. And uh, and you, you know, I emerged and I lived. And and that's always a uh, that's such a liberating feeling. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's one of the benefits of uh, of age. It almost compensates for the fact that I can't play basketball anymore. <laughs> well, good. All right. Well, thank. It was you. great to talk to you. There we good. We're good. That was fun. I I appreciate it, Mr. President. It was great. All right, man. Okay, that happened. That's it. Amazing. Squarespace has set up a special website for this episode featuring photos and other behind-the-scenes stuff at markmeetsobama.com. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I want to thank everyone at the White House who helped make this happen, especially Shayla Murray and Liz Allen. Also, special thanks to Steve Wilson at iTunes, Lex Friedman and everyone at Midroll, Rob Walsh at Libsyn, our web guru Martin Sellis, Dane Miller, Liz Drew, Chris Hayes, Jesse Thorne, Colt Cabana, Ashley Barnhill, and my neighbors. Thanks to my team, Olivia Wingate, Kelly Von Valkenberg, David Martin, Frank Capello, Rob Greenwald, and Matt LeBeau. Stephen Lawrence did the artwork for this episode. Nathan Smith designed our logo. John Montagna created our theme music. And Brendan McDonald produces the show. And I'm Mark Marin. Uh, okay, we'll talk later. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>